Take your Bibles tonight, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 9, the book of Acts chapter 9. So look with me in verse number 10 of Acts 9. Of course, this is the chapter where Paul was, you know, transformed, a saved man. In verse number 10, this is right after his salvation. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus, that is his uh, title, certain disciple, named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, inquire in the house of Judah, uh, Judas, for one called Saul, not yet Paul, of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And so he's told Lord that, you know, he's Paul seen a vision. And so Ananias is sort of unhappy about this because he knows who Saul was. And so he's hesitant, but the Lord says, He's okay. He's been truly transformed. So, verse 17, And so Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul. And there's a lot to unpack there in that small phrase, Brother Saul. The Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, notice Ananias is the vehicle or the conduit through which this blessing is coming. And so he prayed, and immediately there fell from his eyes, verse 18, as it had been scales, he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Now look at verse 22. So this happens, and, and Paul begins to preach in verse 22. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this was the very Christ. And that, and that after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But. Um, Verse 24, but their laying await was known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Verse 25, then the disciples, okay, this isn't the apostles, these are other fellow believers, uh, Christians in Damascus, took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. What a way to escape. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to disciples. That means he, he wanted to, but they were resisting. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. And now another person, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto him how that he had seen the Lord in the way, and they had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was going with them, coming in and going out at Jerusalem, and he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, as he had done in Damascus, and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. So, at this point, Paul's not good at making friends. And uh, verse 30, we're introduced to now another group of people who are unnamed, which when the brethren, okay, no names attached to this group, but when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and set him forth to Sarsus. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the day. Lord, a beautiful day today. Thank you for the opportunity to assemble here together as a church family. Lord, I, I pray we'd find some instruction. Uh, Lord, your desire and intent for us, uh, Lord, towards each other as Christians, and that, Lord, we might, uh, Lord, be encouragers, Lord, to those who need it. And I ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for standing. As I mentioned in Acts chapter 9, we see, as the main highlight, the transformation of the Apostle Paul from a lost man uh, to a saved sinner. We see the grace of God on display and uh, appropriated in Paul's life in an incredible way. What a transformation took place in his life. 
Here was a man bent on destruction and primarily uh, of the church. That was his intent. He was the destroyer of the church. Uh, the word the Bible uses is he, he wrought havoc, meaning he, he was trying to dismember it. He was trying to destroy it. That was his goal. That was his intent. And that what he, that's what he gave great zealous effort to do. And then this man encounters Christ on the Damascus Road. And his life does this incredible abrupt 180. Uh, his intent was to destroy the church. And, you know, he's knocked to the ground. In this bright light, the Lord speaks to him. You know, Paul, Paul, why are why you persecuting me? And he gets up, what would they help me do, Lord? And he begins now to try to build the church. And can you imagine how hard that would be, being the person that he just was before the transformation? And, and, and so we explored that truth about the transformation that we should never underestimate God's ability to change a person or a circumstance. Uh, when God's involved in the equation of anything that we're doing or another person in our life, if we uh, ask Him for help, if He chooses to, then nothing is beyond the reach of His grace. Well, last Wednesday we um, explored another thought. We sidetracked a little bit and we talked about uh, Paul's three years in Arabia and how he, this is spoken of in the book of Galatians, that after he was saved, that he, you know, didn't immediately confer with other men, but he went into Arabia, and he spent their time seeking the Lord and uh, a time with Christ and, and understanding this mystery of, you know, of, of all that Christ meant, and now refiltering the, the Old Testament through the filter of Christ and understanding what these Old Testament scriptures said. And so we talk about the value of spending quiet time with God, uh, time in solitude, where we prepare our soul and mind for the hectic world that we live in. Um, Paul had an arduous journey ahead of him. As I said in Acts 9, I'm going to show Paul what he must suffer for my sake. And so we discussed um, in a small way, which we'll come back to perhaps late in the fall or next year, we discussed how contemporary culture and technology are altering our ability to have any peace of mind, to find any quiet, to actually experience solitude. You know, we, we went from a phone that hung on the wall to one that we now carry in our pocket. And that's not enough. And so, you know, went from just being there to now it beeps and it vibrates. And, and I know we wouldn't understand all this maybe, but all that was not done as a benign attempt to provide you the convenience. No, no, no. Those are all addictive devices. And they're all meant to drive you back to the phone and drive you back to the phone and drive you back to the phone. So, your departure from it is briefer and briefer in time. And it really is, this is, this, all these things are developed by not just people of technology, but people in psychology. Um, there's real psychological science involved here to create the addiction that all of us have to those devices. And I don't have the device, forget your phone somewhere, and then when you discover it, tell me you don't have an addiction. Because we all, where's my phone? It's like we're reaching for the part, a member of our body that's not there. And that's a, brief, a bigger discussion, and it's an uncomfortable discussion, um, but that's what we talked about a little bit. And it's robbing us not just of time, but of peace of mind and of time with God. It's diminishing our cognitive ability, it's reducing our attention span, and creative and addictive dependence upon the very device that we were told that would make our life more convenient, but it's not. And so tonight, with that said, just whetting your appetite for more down the road. Then I want to look at another sub-theme, another vignette in the book of Acts that I think merits coming back to. And I want to look at tonight uh, at those who helped and assisted in allowing Paul to become the influential figure in Christian history that he is. 
You know, the technological revolution we are living through and its attachment, dependent, interruption aspects of our lives isn't the only negative part of Western culture or thinking. Uh, you know, another, and Nancy, you're carefully, perhaps unbiblical philosophy or concept is this sort of ultimate virtue that you and I place or Western culture places on being independent, self-reliant. When I say self-reliant to you, most of us hear that as a virtue. Or we hear that as, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be that. And, and there's, a, there's a note of truth to that, you know, that we are supposed to take care of ourselves. And, but more importantly, we should be responsible for ourselves, is the more biblical thought. Ingrained in Western thinking is the theology of humanism and of human independence. And so, you know, we, we, that in itself maybe is not such a negative, but we, we press it too far. We, we get to the place of genuine humanism where I'm ultimately totally responsible for my life. We, we, we divorce that from involvement with God or dependence upon God. And that's not a biblical um, type of thinking. The ability uh, to live independently without any need for others is a fallacy. And it's incorrect and it's even unhealthy. Um, when we think, you know, I'll do what I want to do or I can become whatever I want to become, that is humanism. And we, we've, we've gone from virtue to vice very quickly and, and maybe even subtly. While part of self-governance is important and there's a good quality about it uh, in, again, taking responsibility for our lives, other tenets of this human faith can leave us isolated, vulnerable, or worse, it can create a self-centered narcissistic ego where it's just, you know, I'll do what I want to do. It all started with the have it your way, you know, Burger King stuff. And now we want everything our way. I mean, everything. You know, we don't really care who we hurt to get where I want to go. And, you know, I don't really care about character or, or ethics. You know, we, we live in this Machiavellian world where I'm going to get where I want to go, go no matter who's hurt in the process. And this brings narcissism and extreme aberration of thought and conduct in people. Um, you know, from having your way hamburgers to you choose the gender you want. All has this seed here in this uh, press too far self-reliance. Um, and, and that's a whole nother series one day. Um, talking about culture dysphoria, it merits our time sometime. But suffice to say for purposes tonight, God didn't make us to be completely independent, but rather for dependence. Um, nowhere in the Bible does it ask us to operate independently, first of all, of God or from other people. That, that is just not good thinking. Whatever I do has to run through the filter of how that affects you and how it affects other people and, and my obligations to them. And, and there's this bigger truth that, um, you know, the, I'm really hardwired to need help. I need friendship. I need connection. I need your help. Uh, this kind of mentality, which there is a, a little virtue in it, of, of pull yourself by your bootstraps and just make things happen. You know, that, that can only take you so far. You'll get further down the road if you're walking with someone. You'll get further down the road with another human being encouraging you and walking beside you. Um, we, we were made for dependence, first of all, upon God. And too few of us pray as we ought to pray in, in this kind of outliving of over-independence. Um, we're to bring everything to God in prayer. 
We're to believe that He can help us with every aspect of life. And, and so we live too independently of God. And sometimes in Western culture, we live too independently of each other. You know, we, we, we take in our neighborhoods that used to be a sense of community uh, where the sidewalks in the front street, you know, on the front of the house, and, and, and we've moved them now so that we, we've got rid of sidewalks. So we, we moved our, our living quarters from the front porch to the back porch, and then we surround ourselves with privacy fences. And, and, and so we're, we just, in the world of social connectedness, which is such a misnomer, we're more isolated than we've ever been. And if you ever watch the news, we're not more psychologically healthy for it. You know, our, people all over the, America are scratching their heads asking, what's wrong with us? I, I don't mean to sound arrogant. I, know, I have the answers, but people don't want to hear them. And it is the media, and it's the way we live, and it's, just, it's this isolation that we really are living in today. And so, my point is this, is the text is teaching, the Bible teaches that you and I need God and we need each other. And you are lesser for living independent and apart from other people in an isolated way. In Acts, it's easy and even appropriate to see a central spotlight shine upon certain individuals. We see this early, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1. And then we see the spotlight move to Peter and John. And of course, there's, there's so much to see and admire there. Um, the spotlight goes from there to, to Stephen. And we, we see this noble character of Stephen. And then we see the spotlight, you know, go to Philip. And now in, in, in the last part, chapter 8 9, again, we see it go back to Peter. And it's getting ready to shine really brightly for the remainder of the book of Acts on Paul. And there's so much to learn there. And, and that's really what our Sunday mornings are about, is looking for that central spotlight and focus and seeing what the, the Lord has to say to us about these people. But I want to say to you, there's other actors in this grand drama involved in the book of Acts as well. And just because the spotlight's not as bright on other figures doesn't mean that they play a, an insignificant role in what's happening here. In Acts 9, in the verses I read, there are other people that we see here that play a role. There's a man named Ananias, and his acclaim to fame is that he is called a certain disciple. <laughs> There's a certain disciple, you know, named Andrew, and here's what he did, and then we, we move right back. And then we see Barnabas, first mentioned in chapter 4, but here again in chapter 9. And there's this, this group of guys who have the acclaim of being called the Brethren. We don't even know their individual names. They're just called the Brethren. And then we see the disciples again. And then, of course, the reference, I believe, down 14 or, or verses 27 right here, of course, is an allusion to the apostles. So five different groups of people. All these people played a role in Paul's ascension, if I use that word, of Paul becoming the notable character that all of us know him to be. You know, there's a truth here that even kings need a court. Even kings are supported by a staff or helpers. Matter of fact, if you really think about it, the higher you go in leadership, the more the people you're really depending upon. Amen. If you're really thinking about that rightly. And, and that would certainly be true of biblical characters, and it was certainly true of the Apostle Paul. I mean, you would think about it. Moses is considered the greatest leader of all time. But Moses could not have done his job without Aaron. Moses couldn't even utter a coherent sentence without a level of interpretation from Aaron. He couldn't have ever won a battle without Joshua. 
He didn't know how to take care of his own family, minus his father-in-law's advice and Jethro. And there's a host of other people who played a significant role. We see Moses, but there are people who literally held his hands up that made a difference in the outcome of battle. David, the man after God's own heart, what, what an incredible guy, but David still required his mighty men, which were many. The great Elijah, what an incredible soldier, you know, for the Lord. Um, but he needed the help of a widow and a bird to stay alive. What would Gideon have been without his 300? Even Jesus Christ surrounded himself with 12. The Bible's solo acts, as I think of them, didn't turn out so well. A man named Saul, King Saul, not the New Testament Saul, King Saul, he operated with a great level of autonomy, and how'd that turn out? I think about Samson who listened to no one, and things didn't turn out so good for him. I think of Balaam and others. I, I could go, I have a list here. Second time I won't. These people walking these journey, this journey alone, things didn't turn out very good for them. I can simply tell you, going life alone, autonomous, without help, without friend, without advisor, without encourager, is incredibly dangerous and doesn't turn out well. The Bible says it's a threefold cord that is not easily broken, but a single one is. In isolation, we become vulnerable, endangered, and disoriented. We often lose sight of how life really is. In Acts chapter 9, we see Paul's incredible transformation in the beginning of his ascension to become Christianity's greatest evangelist, its greatest theologian, a church planter, and its most influential influencer. But that's not where he started. His road to Christianity started out blind. He was a man who couldn't even find his way to the nearest city, Damascus, without the help of other brothers. And once there, he, he was still um, unable to eat, unable to seat, eat. And if it were not for others, I, I don't know that we would have been talking about the Apostle Paul, you know, tonight. The first guy we see in our text is a man named Ananias. Again, a certain disciple. No notoriety, no praise, um, you know, no formal position that we, we know of. He was simply a Christian man living in Damascus, quietly serving God. Someone that God saw that he could trust with a very unique message. And God used him as the first great encourager, direction setter for the Apostle Paul. And his very first words were brother. Words of endearment. Words like, you were an enemy, but now you're a brother. I'm saying there's so much to consider in this simple phrase, you were a murder of the church, but now you're my brother. You had to think about how that had to fall in the Apostle Paul's ears. And what did he do for Paul that was so profound? His contribution, he prayed for him. He prayed for him. God made, um, you know, uh, this man go from this incredible uh, sinner to this saint. But the way he got him there in terms of influence was through prayer. Ananias was a little reluctant to do this. And God encouraged him to encourage Paul. And so Ananias goes to him. And when he prays, the, the scales, as it were, this is Luke the physician using a medical term, falls from his eyes and he can see. He prays again and receives the Holy Spirit 
And it's, trans, it's a transformative event for the Apostle Paul. You know, we, we, prayer is so elementary that we assign it a lesser role than it deserves in our life. Um, how many of us have said in sentiment, I'll pray for you? And I'm not saying we're being disingenuous with that. I, I, I'm guessing most of us actually do. But I'm not sure we're fully aware of the difference those prayers might actually make in someone's life. You know, if we're going to believe that we should not underestimate God's ability to change someone, we ought not believe that God may first initiate that through our prayers. I believe that prayer is perhaps the greatest gift, the greatest resource, the greatest strength that we can lend or gift to someone else. James says, it is the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. I know there's something there about the way we conduct our lives, but most of our righteousness, if not all of our righteousness, comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when a Christian prays, things can happen. We have not because we ask not, and the asking there is nothing more than praying. I believe that so much in our life and possibly the life of other people, and think about that responsibility. What if it's not just that we have not because we ask not, what if others have not because we ask not for them? I, I've thought about that. So much of our life and possibly the life of other people is forfeited by our neglect of prayer. Paul was not only changed by prayer, but in time he became a, a practicer of prayer himself. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1 with me real quickly. Book of Colossians chapter 1. And so this man who was prayed for at the beginning of his Christian life took that as a model and template to pray for other people. And this is just one text of, of many where the Apostle Paul is talking to a new church, a group of people, and either he starts or ends with this part of his salutation. And it, it, he's not just adding filler words. This was what Paul did. But in verse number 9 of Colossians chapter 1, he says this, For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, Heard of your need, heard of your concern, heard of your want, heard of your deprivation, heard of whatever. He says, for this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to, next word, for you. And he prays that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And he just continues this lengthy, beautiful prayer. Now, I... I I'm going to make this giant assumption. I'm going to believe that the, the believers at Colossae were helped because of Paul's prayers. What a gift that someone would pray for us. This past December, I had a spinal surgery. And uh, perhaps more than any other time in my life, I had more people tell me, you know, hey, Pastor, we're going to pray for you. And I, I never had the sense that was just a passing sentiment. Um, and probably in the most notable way in my um, maybe last 10, 15, 20 years, I, I felt that. I mean, I felt bolstered. I felt supported. You know, I felt loved, but I also felt a strength and an encouragement that, I, that may very well have been, would have been absent. Uh, Terry was with me when the surgeon came in afterwards and we were expecting a four or five hour surgery and he finished it an hour and a half. Um, when he came to see Terry, you know, she thought I died and he was coming to tell her, you know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he says, I've just never had things line up like that before. You know, some of the fact that you must have people praying for you. And I did. 
that's real. You know, it was real to me emotionally. Uh, I believe it, it has made a significant difference in the outcome. It was palpable by the doctor and other people. And it makes a difference. For the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn there, but I want you to make this notation in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, Paul's given instruction to Timothy. And there's this phrase there. I don't remember if it's verse 1 or 2, but he, he says this. He says, first of all, That is the quote. First of all, then he goes on to say, you should pray. And then he says, basically, for others, kings and leaders and people in positions of power for the church. He says, before you do anything else, Timothy, as a pastor and as a helper of the people, that would be the church of Ephesus. He says, you pray for them. You pray for your country. You, you pray for your leaders. You pray. You, you want to have, you want to see change come in the land. You want to see change come in the church. You want to see change come in their lives. You want to see change come in your own personal life. First of all, you give yourself to this encouragement of prayer. You want to see the trajectory of people's lives change, then you need to pray for them. Honestly and fervently. Prayer is a priority because of all that can accomplish and do. As in the case of Ananias, it was the catalyst that caused God to change Paul's life. It makes a difference. Secondly, I want us to see what Barnabas did. The name Barnabas is, is fascinating because it literally means what he was. It means son of encouragement. We are first introduced to Barnabas in chapter 4, the last two verses, I believe. And what is, what is Barnabas doing? Well, Barnabas owns some land. And so Barnabas sells the land and he comes back and he uses it to be an encouragement to the people who needed it. He was funding the needs of the church. He wasn't like just giving a tithe. This man was identifying people in the church who were in want and need, and he sold his land to meet their needs, son of encouragement. This is what this man gave his life to. And can you imagine the difference that made in the church if someone comes and says, hey, you, know, you need a place to live and you don't have any food and you need a vehicle or you know, whatever. And he began to meet that. Can you not imagine how hearts were lifted? And this is what he, he was doing. In Acts 9, he cited again. He's mentioned there. And what is he doing there? He's befriending someone that nobody else wanted to befriend. He was touching the untouchable. Because of Paul's horrific past, all the disciples and all the apostles wanted nothing to do with him. And he would have stayed that way, humanly speaking, minus the intervention of this man of encouragement named Barnabas. The rest of the Christians, and rightly so, were reluctant to receive him. But somehow Barnabas knew and observed he was a changed man and he encouraged other people to give him a chance. He took a chance in verse 27. And, and there's these two phrases that he took him and he brought him. Okay, to me those are acts of initiation. He took him. He goes to Barnabas. He took, he, he grabbed him. And then he took him to a different place. We, we look at Paul and all that he did. But it all started with one man saying, I believe in you. You, you can be better. You can do more. And then taking him to a group of other people. Because otherwise, I don't know, again, we'd ever be, would ever know about the Apostle Paul. He may have lived the rest of his days in obscurity or of limited impact. Barnabas didn't only befriend Paul, but he, this was his life practice. John Mark, who failed later in the ministry, Barnabas said, I still believe in you. And he befriended him. He was an inspiration to Luke who wrote about him twice. And in, in chapter 4 he ministered to those in the church. 
Every time this man's name is mentioned, he's in the act of initiating encouragement, helping someone else. He was an initiator of friendship. Befriending other people is an act of initiation. It's not passive, but active. This act of encouragement can make all the difference in the world to other people. I want you to think about this. When someone visits Eastland Baptist Church, and it may be a long time since you've you know, been in that position, but this is, there's some decorum here, and this is appropriate. You know, I walk into a new church. You know, I'm not running to, to Alan and Jerry and all these other people and saying, hey, I'm Troy Durrell. Yeah, I'm the guest. I walk in, and I'm, I'm probably a little subdued. I'm an observer. I'm looking around. I don't know, some of you would be more initiators, but many of us would be more reserved. And what we really need to happen, and probably are hoping it would happen, is that somebody would initiate conduct with me. God forbid that anyone ever walk the doors of Eastland Baptist Church and numbers of us don't initiate them in contact. That we're not a Barnabas. That may be the single biggest difference in them ever coming back a second time or not. The music could be great. The sermon may be uniquely good. Um, whatever. But if, man, if you, you show some initiation, you befriend them, you invite them over, there's just, that is, you, you may have just altered the trajectory of their whole life. I... I hate using examples because I always leave people out, but I mean, we'd all agree. Is not, are not Jerry and Phyllis Palmer great initiators? They know more people than all the rest of us combined. And I'll go to meet someone and say, oh, yeah, we already we met Jerry and Phyllis. Okay. Um, you may not know that much, but Harold Kendrick identifies people out there in the foyer, and he talks to people that other, other, others of us would be hesitant to talk to, and he initiates contact with so many. Um, Sherry and Craig Davidson have a public ministry, the children's area, but they have an enormous ministry of influence and befriending people. Like, it is off the charts. They are making an unbelievable difference in an informal way that probably surpasses any formal ministry that any of us hold. They are being a Barnabas. And these are huge difference makers in people's lives. You and I can change the trajectory of people's lives by simply initiating intervention, becoming a new friend, showing interest in them, taking a chance on someone new. You know, think about the youth department where this is always so awkward, painfully awkward. You know, a new kid walks in and everybody's just kind of looking at him, you know? And if they're not cool, then Lord help them, you know? But then there's always the guy or the girl, because our kids are great at this, of being the Barnabas. And they break the ice. And they'll talk to them. And that kid could be in total isolation for a long time. But if this one person, see, I know the group, this person does, but if, it's, it's kind of like if I, if I meet them and kind of involve, envelop them, then all of a sudden everybody else can kind of come in too. And I, I watch that happen all the time here at church. I see one person meet someone new, and all of a sudden they introduce them to their, their group, and all of a sudden the person's totally incorporated the church. And that's how it's supposed to work. This is what Christianity is about. This is what Jesus constantly did. He initiated befriending. He went to the woman of the well. He went to the, 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 the demonic Gadara. He told Zacchaeus, you know, come down. He always found those people who were in isolation alone, and he initiated contact, and their lives were forever changed. 
There wasn't a bigger, grander story with all these people. It was just that initial contact, got them in the group, and the group took over, and these people's lives were helped. You and I need to be people who are looking for others on life's journey, who seem maybe a little bit alone and isolated, and sacrificing a little of our time in life to initiate befriending them. This is a big deal in the teen department. This is a big deal for singles, for young parents. Stepping in and mentoring, guiding, just being kind to them can keep them and save them and alter their life. And then a third group here, and I'll finish with this. This is, this is I'll use two different groups. There's a group mentioned in verse 25 called Disciples. She's talking about Christian people. And then in verse 20, they're a different group in a different city called Brethren. That's their, their titles of distinction. They're Brethren and Disciples. Both these groups intervened in the Apostle Paul's t- life in a time when he was in the, under physical jeopardy of harm. So Paul was doing his thing, and these other people were looking at Paul saying, this guy's in trouble. And one group came in, and they got a big basket, and they lowered him over the wall and got him out. And the other guys just grabbed him and ushered him, you know, surrounded him to a place called Caesarea for a while, then back to his home city of Tarsus. Two groups of people, I'm going to use it this way, who helped him go in the right direction. In Damascus, Paul was headed for trouble, and a group of people got a basket and strongly suggested it's time to leave. Same thing in Jerusalem. Paul was in the crosshairs of the Greeks, and a group of people risked their own lives and brought him safely to Tarsus. A role that every one of us can play is to help other people go in the right direction. To get safely to Tarsus. Everyone in this room, and forgive me, my brain was limited on its ability to be creative here. All of us are a little bit like, uh, you've seen bumper pool, you know? Little things in the middle of the pool table, and the ball goes and hits it, and it changes the trajectory, you know, of the ball. We're all a little bit like that. Our encounters with other people may deflect them the right way or deflect them the wrong way. But almost none of us have the option of being neutral as much as we'd like to be. We're all a little bit like bumper pads or maybe even a prodding stick. When people come in contact with us, whether we intend to or not, we may be batting them into a specific direction. Man, I love church. This is a great place. My life was changed here. Small interaction, but someone says, oh, I might need that. Or someone, had, someone contacts us and your life's mean and bitter and miserable and they're thinking, well, yeah, I just go that way too. Every, none of us are islands unto ourselves. And all of us are, if even incrementally, pushing someone to Tarsus or someone out of the basket. We're all playing that role for someone and someone. And again, passivity is really probably not an option for us. We're leading people someplace by the way we're living our lives. We're either offering a basket. Man, serving the Lord is great. And, uh, or, hey, I'll, I'll be a friend to you. Or let me encourage you. Or just by the way you live your life, you're, you're being a light to someone to go the right direction. Or you're putting people off. And you're discouraging people. Worship, you're literally leading them to a negative place. 
we all have culpability for the way we interact with other people. In a different application, for, for us to, to know to do right and do it not, it is what? And that's not just for ourselves. That may be for other people. To know that Alan needs some help, or I could help bat him in the right direction and just omit myself from that equation, I don't know that I'm not culpable there, responsible for that. If the Lord said, I put you there to be a help to him, I, I didn't think anything about it. You know, the Lord may be strategically play, planting every one of us at our job, in our neighborhood, here in this church, in your class, in the youth department, who knows where, to just bump someone a little bit in that direction. And someone else to bump them in the right direction. As I think about my life, I've had so many people bump me in the right direction. I've had a few detractors, but for the most part, I have just been bumped and bumped and bumped and bumped the right way. From the time I was a teenager to this day, I have had the unique blessing of having people help me. And it's not always been fun. Some of the bumps had prickles on them. You know, you should think about this, head in the wrong direction. Not all of it was comfortable, but all of it was kind. All of it was instructive and helpful. Words and actions, intervention, time spent, a walk, a talk can all be helped. I'll end with this. I did a brief survey of the New Testament. <laughs> this is what I came up with. This is, this is not a definitive number. It's what I came up with. The Bible mentions 76 people who were an encouragement to the Apostle Paul. 76 people. No wonder he stood so tall. No wonder he had so much success. He was never alone. Paul wasn't just a great man. Paul had great friends. And so we need to be that for each other. We need to be the brethren. We need to be the disciple. We need to be the certain disciple. We need to be the son of encouragement. You're not made for isolation. None of us are strong enough and tough enough to live that kind of life. I need that. You need that. So if I need it and you need it, other people need it from us. And so let's try to provide that. Let me ask you to stand tonight if you would.